Hi everyone, welcome to That Nikki Mum, a podcast where we share the stories of New Zealand parents who have had babies in neonatal units across the country. Um, today we are speaking to Rosie. She is the um, the brains, the the hands, the magic behind Rosie's life casting studio. Um, she actually started her business after her son Oakley was born at 29 weeks, teeny tiny, 695 grams. Um, and they had a scare thinking he wasn't going to survive. So she she enlisted someone to um, do castings of his hands and feet. And from there, her passion kind of grew, um, which is amazing. It's so cool to hear that from such a negative experience, she's built this like amazing business and um, chatting to her, you'll hear that she doesn't have any kind of trauma or negative association with her time in, in the unit, um, which is amazing and it's so nice to hear. Um, but yeah, she has a lot to say. She <laughs> wrote a lot of lists, as you'll hear, with um, what she needed to talk about. But yeah, her story is is amazing. Um, and yeah, it was it was so nice to talk to her. She is she is so lovely. Um, so I hope you enjoy this episode as much as I did. Um, yeah, let's get into it. So I am Rosie. I am Wellington born and raised, currently living in Carpety with my family, um, who is my partner, Mike, and our son, Oakley, who's now four. Um, I work from home, run my own business. And yeah, we just have one uh, little boy born in 2019, a micro preemie called Oakley. Um, I'm all about the stats. Whenever I hear someone's had a preemie, I always want to know what their stats are because then you know whether you can like compare them <laughs> or not. Yes. I'm like and that so, with all babies, to be fair. Yeah, like, no, has a baby, and I'm like, how much did they weigh? Absolutely. So um, Oakley was born at 28 plus six weeks gestation um, and he weighed 695 grams, which wow, makes um, yeah, 0.4th percentile if you're into your percentiles. Um, but, you yeah, know, we're now living the good life at home and he's a um, big and busy toddler and he turns five next year. Wow, that's crazy. Yes, it's kind of us in a nutshell. It is. It is crazy. So I've been like listening to your podcast and um, everyone's talking about being in NICU like during COVID and we were so lucky to have not had that experience. Yeah, um, for sure. He was about nine months old before the first lockdown hit and so um, we kind of instead sort of spent the first year of his life in, in and out of lockdown, which in a lot of ways kind of suited me. <laughs> quite yeah, well. yeah. Um, Especially when you've got obviously a um such a little baby who's susceptible to illness, it's kind of nice to be like forced to stay at home and avoid all the one hundred percent. It totally took the like boundary setting out of um like you know it wasn't my fault. I could blame it on um the government. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um. So yeah. So it worked really well for us. So that so that's us. So that's me. Um. And that's my partner and our little boy. So obviously he was born tiny, teeny tiny. Um, yeah. Was it a spontaneous labour? Did you have an emergency C-section? Like what were the circumstances around his birth? Um, so, yeah, so pregnancy-wise, so I um, 
found it really easy to get pregnant. We just decided that we um, wanted to have a baby and it just kind of happened without much effort, which we're very lucky with. Um, Pregnancy was straightforward. I had always wanted to be a mum, so the kind of prospect of pregnancy um, uh, and parenthood was something that I, my whole life, had been really excited about. So it was very exciting when um, the test came up positive. Um, and everything was going well. My mum had hyperemesis for uh, her two pregnancies, and I was kind of, I thought that I was just, that was like just my luck for it to be destined um, to happen to me. And I it didn't, so I was so grateful. Um, I had kind of minimal nausea and I felt fine. Um, I didn't put on any weight or have any discomfort, and I was kind of just like cruising along mm. in pregnancy. Um, until I had my anatomy scan and so that was around 20 weeks and they identified that he was a little small but it wasn't really concerning Mm -hmm. at that point in time um and so we booked in for a follow-up growth scan about six weeks later and I just continued along with pregnancy we went overseas on holiday we did a gender reveal and found out we were having a little boy which was really exciting especially for my partner who is the oldest of seven um, and he's got six younger sisters Wow! so he was stoked to yeah. have a little boy he couldn't imagine that it was going to be anything else but a girl so yeah <laughs> Um, so yeah, so, you know, the excitement was kind of building and pregnancy was going fine. So I was just sort of cruising along and I had said to myself, third trimester, that's when, um, I'll start getting organized and Uh that's when my, uh, I'll start showing and I'll be living, you know, as this like pregnant goddess that I had always imagined that I would be, um, so yes, then we went overseas on a holiday, had a little bit of a baby moon and came back and it was the following day that like a Monday morning or something like that, that the mm. follow-up growth scan was booked. And I, uh, uh, also coincided with the day that I was supposed to be starting my three month handover with my replacement at work. Um, and we had the scan, they sent us to the hospital you know, and this is in a nutshell, and then he was born the very next day. So wow. I didn't go into labor spontaneously. Um, it was a series of kind of decisions that were made based on the fact that he was severely growth restricted um, to deliver him by cesarean. The Did they say how big he was measuring at the scan? Yeah, they were five grams out. So, you know, wow. a lot about how uh, how inaccurate yeah. can be. And they can, especially when babies get bigger. But in our, yeah. in our circumstance anyway, the obstetrician was bang on, five five grams out. So they guessed he was 690 and he was 695. Wow. Um, which you can't even comprehend at that time what that even means. Like what? Is a six hundred grand baby? What? What, yeah. is <laughs> what is that? You um, think of baby, oh. and you think of like two kilos at least, right? Yeah. I I certainly, and I think this like contributed to a lot of my mindset throughout this whole ordeal was I was so 
unaware of what could happen and what was going to happen. And I've always had kind of like quite an optimistic sort of disposition um, that I just couldn't comprehend any of it. I could not comprehend anything whatsoever. And therefore, I just, as we all did, we just had no choice but to kind of but to kind of get through it. And we didn't know, well, I didn't know what kind of lay, lay ahead at all. And so his size, certainly, that was a massive, massive, massive shock. Um, my partner's Tongan and he's like a big guy. Oh I am not small. And so it never crossed my mind in 100 years that we would have a small baby. In I fact, I was imagining this like big Tongan man with this tiny 600 gram baby. Yeah, I was, I was, convinced that I was going to have this 19 kilo bearded child walk out with me when he was ready um but that totally wasn't what happened so so yeah so what happened with our birth was that basically uh we had the follow-up growth scan they said oh he's a bit small at that point in time that was kind of all they said we didn't really realize the extent of it they sent us to the hospital um and then over the following 12 uh, 24 hours we kind of were given snippets of information to um to really understand the kind of gravity of the situation so basically they said he was really growth restricted they suspected he was about 690 grams and that their um and that my placenta was working at about 30 percent efficiency um and that their recommendation was that he was delivered um sooner rather than later and that he would do better outside then and that was that was going to be what would be safer for him yeah um I uh, it was just so shocking and I um I considered leaving the hospital and just letting whatever happened happen um I've always had like a little bit of a um oh what's the right word I'm all about like natural and physiological birth and so being Mm -hmm. intervened with and like understanding that the hospitals it's in the hospital's interest to medically manage things so that they're not held liable for anything that goes wrong and I completely understand that and it's so you know life-saving in so many ways um but I really felt kind of like cornered into um, making a decision, and there was no right. There was no right decision. So yeah. um, we basically had overnight to come to terms with what had happened, and they had scheduled me for a cesarean the following morning. Um, I've said it before, but like it's so hard to have things like choices taken away from you absolutely you know like with your birth obviously you know like in the moment you know it's what's best but it still just sucks right like yeah absolutely and I mean it's just one of those things that you it well anything when it comes to healthcare you know you have a choice to decide yeah. what happens and it's so much easier said than done making <laughs> the choice and you have people who are recommending something to you and that's not without risk too and so that's just yeah, yeah so so tricky so um anyway we uh, agreed to having the cesarean and so I spent uh, a night in hospital you know the last night in hospital knowing that something was wrong and that I was pregnant and being monitored and um yeah. 
and we had steroids for his lung development. And yeah, I, I definitely felt like all my choices and wishes were taken from me and, mm. um, and that kind of going against the grain uh, and just letting, you know, my body continue with the pregnancy with whatever outcome. It was a choice that I could make, but it wasn't a choice I could make. Yeah, yeah. Um, so uh, I I kind of tried as much to see how I could work around the recommendation. So I requested an induced vaginal birth. And again, I was recommended against it because of his size. Mm. Um, So I had a C-section and a C-section was, again, something that I never wanted. I I mean... I was against C-sections. I'm going to be completely, completely honest. I, I understand their role, but um, statistically speaking, like C-sections happen a massive percentage of the time and not yeah. necessarily like medically necessary. So I was, so there are different incisions that are made and that can be made. And the type of incision can really determine what your, uh, what future pregnancies are like. And so um, I was told that there was a possibility because of the size of my son that my uh, uterus will, would be very thick. And what that meant is that I would need to have a classical uh, incision, so a vertical incision, mm-hmm. which means that I would only ever be able to have caesareans for any future pregnancies. Awesome. Um and so that in itself was like a whole nother blow. Yeah. And so I asked them if they could do whatever they needed to do, but not tell me whether they were giving me a classical or a, I don't know, standard. I'm not sure what the yeah. term is. You would think um, that the normal one would be called a classical, normal. right? Um, yeah, it's kind of, kind of the opposite. Um, and for them to just please not tell me and that I would ask them and someone would tell me at a later point in time because that was just like one piece of information that was just too much and was too kind of like, um, what's the word? Uh, Oh, yeah, it was was just too much. It was just an issue for the future but a massive big black daunting issue for me. So um, I kind of went into – the C-section knowing that that was going to be a potential issue, but I wanted to brush it to the side while I dealt with. Wanted to be a bit ignorant, right? Like ignorance is bliss. Yeah. Well, uh, it was almost just kind of protecting me because I knew if they said we had to do a a C-section, then it it would just be like, I would then have to deal with that on top of everything else. So I was kind of just, you know, putting it into a bottle and putting it in the cupboard for a later (laughs) day, you know, a very healthy way of dealing with things. Um, Anyway, it was just what happened at the time. So uh, my cesarean, it was like a pleasant experience. And honestly, it's totally changed my whole perception of what cesareans could be like in my views on what it would be like. Um, I, you know, we didn't, go into the theater with it was all very kind of relaxed I should say it wasn't Mm. even though it was an emergency it wasn't you know an emergency emergency so Mm. everyone was very upbeat and I had my music playing and I had my midwife there taking photos and it went you know it was really straightforward and Again, I was just cruising along on the like train of delusional optimism <laughs> at that point. <laughs> um, I had preferences and things, and so I did as much as I could to kind of make the cesarean uh, an experience that I could enjoy in some way. Mm-hmm. So that was with the music and with the photos, and um, 
and there were things that I requested, like delayed cord clamping and yeah, getting um, to kiss my son and things like that, which kind of uh, helped, I think, yeah. in um, in how I view the experience and how I felt like his arrival into the world went. Um, so I do kind of regret not being more outspoken and, and demanding and um, mm. specifically about the cord clamping. I really would have liked if they could have brought like the recess table over to me and, um, and kept the placenta, kept the cord intact until the placenta was delivered. And, and Did they do delayed cord clamping for you? No, I said, so this is a, such a um, – semantic but delayed cord clamping clamping and like optimal cord clamping are two different things yeah and so uh they gave me delayed cord clamping because I didn't know any better um and they said yes we've given it to you and then I found out in my medical notes afterwards it was 20 seconds Mm. and optimal is like three minutes so yeah I think in hindsight, I really would have wished that I had demanded um, that that happen and really stood my ground with that because I, I mean, it's one of these these things that you'll never know, but how that would have impacted his health for the better, yeah, yeah, in, for the rest of his kind of journey. So, anyway, hind, hindsight, hindsight, but <laughs> overall relatively positive yeah I got to kiss him so he was born and they took him over me and showed me and I kissed him and like you might th- you might think this is yuck but this is just what happened I kissed <laughs> him and then I licked my lips and I was like that is the nicest thing I've ever tasted in my whole life and I would never forget this taste and I mean I guess it's like the taste of amniotic fluid or something I don't know but it's something that's like really stuck with me um <laughs> That, yeah, just like the, the kiss being like, <laughs> I see, it's so weird to say. <laughs> no, only was, a yeah, mother, eh? Only a mother's love. <laughs> totally. Um, so, he, yeah, he was born. He didn't need ventilation, which was really surprising. So he was yeah. um, put on CPAP right away and whisked off to the neonatal unit. Um, and so this is Wellington Hospital, Wellington neonatal unit. So mm-hmm. even though like it, wasn't a bad experience the delivery is birth I certainly feel robbed you know I wanted to birth at a birth center I wanted to experience labor and birth and was so excited for it and I didn't want to be medically intervened with I I you know all of these things that I wanted I didn't have um I do feel okay with it and it has meant that if I end up having to have another cesarean in the future for whatever reason I don't think I'll feel so bummed about it because did I, they end up doing the classical no yes oh, no they sake. didn't do the classical so exciting so I can't even remember how um how long after I found that out but it probably was only like the next day as I couldn't you know I couldn't not find out but um yeah. in that moment of his birth I didn't want that to be really tainted by them saying oh sorry we had to do a classical yeah um, so amazing that, so it's really, really cool. So that's, you know, that means that if I, if we do have another baby, then yeah. I could um, be a candidate for a vaginal yes. birth, which is what I hope for. Um, so, yes, yeah, so we were uh, in NICU for 100 days exactly. We were discharged on day 100 and... After we were discharged, and this is something that 
would never happen in COVID times. We returned to the unit for a weekly overnight stay to wean him from his NG tube Um, because when he came home, he had blood sugar issues, which meant he was fed continuously through a pump to manage his levels. And the only way he was able to be weaned from that is from them to kind of monitor um, uh, the duration of of breaks he could have in between his his feeds by yeah. heel pricking and things. So we, even though it, we were discharged on day 100, it was still kind of like a prolonged period after that where we were still partially like one foot in the door and one foot out. Did they um, want to keep you in the unit until he was weaned off? Yeah, they did. Mm-hmm. Um, that was a big kind of event that happened towards the end where yeah. basically I lost the plot like a, a little bit. Um, so, so yeah. So the reasons um, that we were in the unit was that he uh, was severely growth restricted, so severe intrauterine growth restriction. Um, my placenta was sent off for testing, and I had what's called distal villus hyperplasia, which is basically a malformation of the placenta. So how it formed in the first trimester was not ideal, and what that resulted in was that it was working at about 30% efficiency of what a normal placenta would have been working at. And so once he got to a certain size, which was about 23 weeks, so when he was born, he's the size of a 23-weeker, um, he hadn't grown for um, for about five weeks prior. So once he got to about 23 weeks, the placenta couldn't give him any anything more um, yeah. to grow. But we'd only we only found out a little bit later on down down the track. And so we were in Wellington near a natal unit. I was so grateful for the staff. Um, I actually love staying in the hospital and I wished I could have stayed the entire time. Um, but I was discharged after five nights. Mm-hmm. Um, the facilities were fine. They did the job. I would have loved the whole thing to be a bit less kind of depressing and yes. dark. Like, especially the communal areas in the expressing room. I had a friend, yeah. uh, my best friend came and visited and she's a photographer and she sort of like took some photos of us and stuff and she just kind of couldn't believe how just medical, I mean, it's a hospital, right? It's, and they're not in the business of like decor. <laughs> yeah, but even still, like especially in the pumping rooms. Absolutely. I mean, you, I don't know what it was like for you, but we were always surrounded by these like these curtains that you would that were on wheels and you could make your own little kind of privacy screens and things we didn't have that we were just out in the open oh my god what there was like a bench table along one side and there were three seats there and then there was one more at the back and it was like literally each other and pump yep and then like just chat chat away it was bizarre and it was just a very a very bland room yeah whoa I'm so shocked at that because I mean I'm for like doing stuff communally and like maybe I would have liked that I don't know but yeah that's so weird I I chose to pump next to the to the boys anyway I was like I'm not sitting in that room yeah no I can totally understand that I uh, would go and pump in the milk room and I would like make myself as little cubicles surrounded in these um these like curtains and even just like the patterns on the curtains are like (laughs) I can just see it in my mind and if I ever like went to someone's house and I saw that pattern I would probably like rip the curtains down (laughs) 
Um, but it was the only time that I had to like eat and um, yes, so actually just have a little bit of privacy because you just don't have any privacy. Yeah. You know, just being letting it all hang out and eating my chocolate and watching kind of Netflix. But wow, that's so interesting that you that was like a communal pumping. Station. Yeah, yeah. Oh, it was. <laughs> we just called it the milking room. Yeah. <laughs> In um Wellington, they had little labels on each of the pumps, and they were mm-hmm. all given like cow names. So they were, <laughs> like one was called Bella, one was called Daisy, another one was like Bob. <laughs> That's amazing. That was probably the most exciting, like upbeat kind of part of the day pool there with the name. Yeah. Pumps. But anyway, certainly not about the, the day pool. Like the facilities were fine. They they honestly just they did the job. Um, I would have loved to have a tiny bit more space to just kind of set up a home away from home, mm-hmm. you know, and you have your station where your baby or your babies are staying and you know, we literally had one drawer to keep anything in and yeah. You couldn't really put much in there no um and I actually remember once there was somebody who came round and was visiting and they were from Florida and they were some part of some other neonatal unit over there and they had just transitioned to every baby having their own room (gasps) and the room would have a bed and the parents and things could stay and I was like that would be awesome that sounds Um, amazing yeah, that sounds like a dream, right? But yeah. then you would certainly be even more isolated from like making yeah, I suppose. one else in the unit. But I mean, it wasn't really there for making friends. But um, yeah, I would have. That, that's the main thing. I just would have loved a bit more space to kind of set mm. up away from home, especially when we knew we were going to be there for for some time. Yeah. Um, but my favorite thing about the unit probably was. Uh, the neonatal trust shop so now called the little miracles trust but in wellington hospital they have a little shop i don't know if every single um, oh we didn't have one in oh and so they so uh run by the neonatal trust or the little miracles trust and um there are a couple of women there and they were basically just like your go-to people for anything and and everything so they had a library of books that you could hire and so i would you know sit there during the day and like research about prematurity and other health things that my son was going through and they would you know sell pumps and pump parts and they would give you free meals from the freezer and they're just like they were angels like complete and utter angels and you would they were situated right at the entrance of the unit. So you would walk past them every time you would arrive and you would, you know, they were the last people you would see when you left for the day. And um, they were, you know, they became more like friends because they weren't, they were staff on the unit, but they, you know, had nothing to do with the day-to-day care. Yeah, yeah. Or child and they they knew everyone and kind of, yeah, they were just such helpful, um, amazing kind of people to have there. And so that, Overall experience in the unit was tough but positive. So I say this in hindsight. So, you know, I'm four years in to anybody listening here and is, you know, at a different um, time gap, you know, or whether you're in the unit right now. So I'm four years in um, and I can look back on it being really hard, but, you know, it was, I, I have lots of positive thoughts about it. I yeah. don't feel negatively at all about um 
anything really that went on on the unit. So, uh, you know, we were I was thrown headfirst into this new world, and I had to learn how to you to learn the ropes. Um, yeah. I mentioned this before, but yeah, to begin with, I was just like delusionally optimistic. I had no idea what lay ahead of me. Um, I had to learn how the unit worked and its schedule. So like doctor's rounds and yeah. who's who. There's so many people and I'm, you, you know, you don't know who they are and how they fit. And, it, you know, we were there for a hundred days and honestly, it probably took me that long to kind of like figure it all out. So, yeah. you know, people who were there for a shorter period of time, they probably still don't know who like half of the people who came no. and introduced themselves. When and you guys had, had um, the nurse changeover, I don't know. Yeah. I, I just this is what we had in, in Wakato. So they would try and encourage you to leave the room so they could do the handover because obviously you're not yeah. supposed to hear about yeah. the other um, yes. patients. But if we were like feeding or you know we're holding the babies, they'd come around and they'd give us these headphones, but oh, they had some music so playing, <laughs> so you could just sit there like holding your baby and listening to music. <laughs> And the first time, the first time that happened, I was like, "What? The, like, what is that? What are we doing?" Like, it was just like such a strange juxtaposition to be sitting there with these headphones on, like massive. Yeah, people, like, I can imagine you're looking for like. I can imagine if it, if they gave you ones and it's like hold music, so you're listening to like. Yeah. <laughs> I was just such um, a juxtaposition to the usual, like quiet and like, you know, yeah. tranquility. Yeah. Oh, that's interesting that they did that. They certainly didn't do that in Wellington. It was just like a blanket. You had to be out of the unit yeah. for half an hour at 7 o'clock a.m. and 7 o'clock p.m. Um, but that would have been kind of nice to not have to be interrupted. But to be yeah. honest, it kind of that that schedule was how we kind of planned out our day anyway. So, um so yeah, figuring out who's who and how to do cares and how mm. to pump and what handovers meant in their times and you know learning how to do a care to, to care for a premature baby is huge. You know how to hold a child that small and how to take care of their medical needs and how to deal with all the equipment and how to dress a baby who has respiratory gear. Like mm. you can always tell a. A preemie parent, well, one or just a parent of a baby who's had respiratory needs, because they always dress them from the feet up. We yes. just learned how to do it that way, and we never stopped doing it that way. And I wouldn't, I would never think about it until I see saw someone. I'm like, oh yeah, you're dressing a baby the normal way. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I always like the button onesies. Everyone when I was pregnant was like, oh, don't get the button onesies, like the dome onesies. They're the worst. But when oh we were God, in the unit, we, we had to. <laughs> Otherwise, you couldn't get all the cords in. Yeah, it's about the functionality, not the style. (laughs) Um, Or not about clothes at all, right? Because sometimes we wear clothes for a long amount of time. Um, So, yeah, I, uh, uh, in terms of my experience, you know, learning how to express, that was, this is, you know, such a huge thing for everybody who has to or chooses to express and pump um, and everything that goes with it. It's a huge learning curve. And I just, I really, really, really struggled with the pumping. Yeah. Um, You know, having to take care of life admin. So, for people who, you know, go into labor spontaneously or just things happen really quickly, you know, you need to 
you you needed I needed to take care of life admin and not let everything at home fall over and you know I had to tell my boss like oh sorry I've just had a baby I'm not coming Mm. to work and the person who is supposed to be learning how to do my role alongside me for the next three months is just going to have to figure it out themselves because I thought I had a whole trimester to write handover notes and um and I'm such a list person so I wrote lists for everything and honestly it's like my top piece of advice like I wrote a list for life admin so to you know wind up work and manage friends and family and just keep on top of bills and and everything Mm -hmm. and I wrote a list for hospital admin so you know things like applying for parental leave and recording mileage and I wrote a list of my daily schedule because you know people don't realize how relentless the schedule is of the NICU parent and I was non- stop from the moment I would wake until the moment I went to sleep at night and then during the night I had to wake up and pump so it was really like completely relentless and I would write a list of questions to ask at the next doctor's rounds and I'd write a list recording my son's kind of daily recap so I could remember what happened and you know share it with people and this really helped me feel kind of in control and help my mind rest and so I even had another list for like once I was discharged home it would tell me what I had to do in the morning before I left to go to the hospital and what I had to do when I got home at night so I didn't have to worry about forgetting anything and honestly it was so missing for me and my sanity every time anything would just come up I'm like write it on the list and then I just would take care of it as it went and so I decided I would take care of like one life admin task a day or every couple of days and that's just how I kind of got through stuff and I really relied on my list to like to get me through because I felt like a project manager, you know, you're trying to keep track of all of these things happening at this time and you're trying to learn how to do new things and you need to ask people to, you know, certain questions and so much going on. So yeah, if you're not a list writer, I do not know how you would have gotten through, but, um, but it worked really well for me. Um, and yeah, I spent heaps of time kind of reading and learning about prematurity when I was cuddling my boy. And I felt really involved and as a member of the team when it came to making decisions and recommendations on his healthcare. And there were really only a small number of times that I was kind of happy with, uh, sorry, unhappy with anything that happened in the unit. And while occasionally they still crossed my mind, they certainly weren't enough to like, paint a negative picture yeah of our experience um and you know ultimately we have a happy ending and so that and and four years have passed and so that has really helped to kind of soften the blow of everything that sort of went yeah um and I've enjoyed returning to the unit and you know seeing staff that cared for um me and and my boy so that's kind of been a nice thing to be able to do yeah too um and I've been in a couple of times since these or a few times I should say since these I've not been back to the unit but I was um I live in a small town Um, and I was out at one of like the local pubs and there was one of the nurses that was it the twins the twins must have been like nearly one at this point and I said like oh my god you looked after my twins and then I was like do you want to see a picture oh my gosh yes it's so I it's so nice when that happens yeah and they they totally love it even yeah for us even a few weeks ago we were out for brunch 
Um, and our home care nurse, I don't know if you had a home care nurse, so it's yeah, whoever the done. person that's assigned yeah. to you when you um, are in the hospital and then when you go home to kind of manage the transition home and period of time after. And she was there and I was like, oh, my God, how's that? That's me. It's Rosie. And um, and Oakley, our son, was with us, and so she got to see him. And it was just – I think some people um, – find the prospect of like returning to the unit really hard and really daunting yeah. and I didn't go back to the unit for a long time but the reason that I did go back was actually like a little bit unrelated and it just so kind of happened to happen and it just sort of felt nice and natural um and I uh I've actually been into the unit to do some hand and foot castings and I've also been into the unit to um to teach some of the nurses how to do hand and foot castings and um and so it was a kind of nice uh like return to the unit it wasn't so um yeah that just didn't it just didn't feel kind of like uh any pressure yeah yeah kind of um, yeah so went straight from the scan to the hospital and didn't really know what was going on and so kind of started out optimistic and gradually as we got kind of more snippets of information realized that we were going to be meeting our boy imminently Mm -hmm. Um, he was delivered the following day by c-section at 8 p.m at night um he didn't require recess and he was put on a cpap which was a nice kind of surprise 28 plus six weeks gestation is a good gestation in terms of lung development it's not great but it's pretty good um and so uh his weight was kind of the main issue for yeah. us so he was about half the size of his gestational peers so like a 28 29 weeker usually about 1.2 kilos um he was half that size yeah I got to visit him in the neonatal unit the same night that he was born so I got wheeled there in my bed um and the following morning I was up and about unable to go and and visit him walk there by myself um the day after his birth too like I was being milked by nurses and midwives and I had someone come and visit me to talk to me about birth control yes I was like what why are you talking to me right now like apart from the fact I'm never having sex again (laughs) am I not still pregnant (laughs) we are when we got discharged they um because I will I was like I don't want any like permanent birth control um so they prescribed us some condoms and my husband went and filled in the prescription like along with like my painkillers and like antibiotics and stuff yeah and he came back and he was like oh they only had chocolate flavored condoms So he like walked back to like the maternity unit with six boxes of chocolate flavored condoms. Oh yuck! <laughs> I was, was like, "What do they think we're going to be doing?" <laughs> that is so good, but I mean, it's so. I guess I understand why they talk to us about birth control, right? But like, sure, they could just wait like a little while. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, I ended up agreeing to having an um, the Jadel implant put in my arm, and yes. I actually really regret doing that. It was one of those things that they had spoken to me about, and then I just wanted it to be something that I didn't have to worry about. Yeah, and so I just agreed to them doing it, and now I need have read a bit about how uh birth control can impact your milk supply and so I actually really regret jumping ahead and doing that um but 
anyway. You live and you learn. Hindsight, so right. Won't be doing it next time. <laughs> um, so, yeah, so, you know, day one, talking about birth control and thrown into the whirlwind of learning how NICU operates and how to express. Um, and I'd been moved into the gynae ward. And this this is just my perspective because I know other people don't feel the same way, but I actually really wish that I could have stayed in the postnatal ward because I actually liked, I didn't find it hard to hear that other people had their babies with them. I found it happy to know that other people were having nice experiences and I think I still like, I really love hearing people's birth stories. Now I really love hearing positive birth stories. And I really yeah. love hearing that people enjoyed pregnancy and had a great time and, and everything. And I think I kind of had that perspective. Um, but I also, how I also found that hearing other people's babies helped me express, which, yes. um, which was kind of the main thing, but I, they, they put me in the gynae ward and, um, that was them thinking they were being helpful, which, you know, yeah. it was. If you did not feel, if you didn't want to be in the postnatal ward and you had no choice, that would have been really tough. But yeah, it's just kind of how I, I felt about it. Um, and I had a friend who was admitted to the hospital at the same time as me, but for completely other reasons. And she was in the, oh, I don't know what ward she was in. And, but anyway, she was just around the corner. And she was such a great support. She was still pregnant at that time. And, you know, we would have dinner together and she would visit my boy and she would give me company while I was pumping and we would kind of debrief on the day's activities. And I I also think that that really contributed to, like, how how good I was in those first few days before, yeah. <laughs> before it came crashing down because I um, – I had a friend, like another woman there to, who was a friend, someone they knew and that I trusted and that I could kind of just spend time with. Um, that wasn't like a kind of visitation thing. It was just, a, it was, yeah. it was just there and it was just so amazing. I could jump and see her for five minutes and have a cry or whatever. And that was such a great thing um, that unexpectedly happened for, for me in, in those mm. kind of days. Um. So our boy, his name is Oakley. We didn't name him for two weeks because we didn't <laughs> we didn't think we needed to think of a name. And every time the doctors would come and do their rounds, they would be like, "No, oh, have you named you? Have you named him yet?" And it was um, and every day we're like, "No, not yet, not yet." And um, uh, in Wellington neonatal unit, they have a nurse that designs these little like name decals, which get stuck. Yes their incubators or their cots and it was such an incentive for us to name <laughs> to name them so we our ended up naming yeah our twins had the um thing one and thing two <laughs> so oh for their God. first birthday we used that as like the theme oh that's so I cool like, yeah I was like, it's sentimental <laughs> I love that I yeah. love that um and yeah so it's such a just having like a sticker on the incubator with their name it actually just felt like such an incentive so we finally decided on a name so his name is Oakley um so he started out for those who know Wellington and Nursery E which is the most highly intensive one of the more highly intensive um nurseries he was fed uh, TPN intravenously so the alternative nutrition to uh, breast milk and he was cared for one-on-one um, by a nurse because some people who go into the neonatal unit they um, uh, and their little ones don't have as intensive needs 
often their nurse will be caring for maybe two or three other babies at the same time. So we had one on one care at first. Um, And when he was three days old, he had something called a pulmonary hemorrhage, which is Mm -hmm. a lung bleed. It has a really quite high fatality rate um, and was probably the most traumatic experience uh, for us and for him um, from his entire stay. So he obviously survived from it. But what happened was I was in my room, so I was still in hospital at that point in time, and I was expressing, and they called me from an unknown number. And so now when anyone ever calls me from an unknown number, it's like a moment of panic. Um, And they called me to tell me that at that moment he was being resuscitated. Um, and that they didn't recommend that we went to see, to, that we didn't go to his bedside. Um, and that instead we come and meet them in the family room. So we went into the unit and he was in a um, bed, in an incubator that was like closest to the door. So you could see that there was like a screen around him and like a whole team of people. Yeah. And we were just sitting in a room next door, kind of wondering what was going on. Um and he was incredibly sick following it. So he needed to be uh, intubated um, and he ended up having two nurses, so two to one care. So two nurses caring for him for yeah. a period of time while he recovered from that. Um, so that was really touch and go. And I contacted a and a local hand and foot caster who did bereavement casting, so casting for babies that had mm. died. And I asked if she would come to the unit and do a hand and foot casting for him because we didn't know if he was going to live. And I knew that I wanted to capture him whilst he was alive um, because that was a much nicer memory for me. And the unit said, no, sorry, you can't do that. Um, And so that that was probably one of the... Um, biggest things that I found challenging was that, you know, you can't often, you can't make parenting decisions for yeah, your child, yeah. for your parent. So I actually ended up convincing this woman to come and cast him a couple of weeks later when he had a hand and fro- foot free from ivy lines and she came and she casted him in his incubator and I just didn't ask for permission and then I got <laughs> Um, talking to afterwards no I didn't really get a stern talking to afterwards but um she did a little hand and foot pass for him so he was about three weeks old and 900 grams by then um yeah. and they are my most like precious possessions apart from yeah. him and my castle on fire I would be getting those and nothing else um so I love them so much and anyway they they set me up in this whole other trajectory and career trajectory yeah. At that moment, I didn't realize what their kind of significance would be, but I just knew I wanted to capture him at a moment where things were so uncertain. And that yeah. was the toughest time that we had in terms of his his health. Um, but he recovered from it and um, and eventually he was extubated and, and put onto CPAP. Um, I Once I was discharged from the hospital, so that was after five nights, they gave me 24 hours notice for discharge, which is what I requested. Mm-hmm. Um, it just felt so cruel. It felt so cruel. And people would say to me, you know, are you living in the hospital? And I would say no. And they would be kind of like shocked, like mm-hmm. leave my baby there, you know, without me. And it's like, well, I don't have a choice. Yeah, I don't want to, but I also need to like sleep at least one hour a night. Yeah. 
So, yeah, so it was just really tough and I, you know, started the regime of travelling to and from Niku and we were so lucky. We were living 10 minutes away from the hospital and yeah. we had no other children. So, um, you know, 10 minutes was still 10 minutes too long, but I would get to the hospital at 7.30 every morning so that I could, you know, do everything I needed to do before doctor's rounds and mm-hmm. And then we would leave between kind of seven and eight o'clock at night so that we could meet the night nurse after handover. And I learned how to read the chart and I listened to everything that was going on and I researched and I asked questions at doctor's rounds. So I always kind of knew what the plan for the day was. And I felt really heavily included and listened to in terms of his care. And I think that too has contributed to kind of my overall like positive outlook on our experience um uh when he was two weeks old it was mother's day um and I got my first cuddle so he was two Uh weeks old where I got to cuddle him for the first time and it was a complete surprise I still thought we had days or weeks ahead of us of not being able to cuddle him and it was yeah um, sprung upon us so that was really exciting um and that then meant that for the next few weeks he was allowed one cuddle per day which is even just a crazy thing to kind of say like oh my god to be cuddled once a day (laughs) you know but we treasured it and so Mike my partner and I we would take turns at having the daily cuddle so and we would hold him for as long as possible because as soon as he got put down you know that was was like coming out again yeah yeah and every day was such a roller coaster you know there was always there was concerns about his coloring like he was gray and dusky or his belly was distended and always up and down like inflammation results and blood tests and honestly it just felt like we were balancing on a knife's edge every day you didn't you didn't know what you were going to come in to see and that was just so hard living in that constant state of life or death basically yeah um and we were just living in this kind of bubble which was a bubble of fear and a bubble of optimism um but we really got snapped back into reality when um one day we came into the unit and his little incubator buddy or his little incubator neighbor had died overnight oh, and no. she was very similar in size and naturally her mum on the first day in the unit came to me and gave me a big hug and she said I just want you to know that things get better um and that was such a lovely thing for her to do and then yeah. the worst thing of all happened to her um and so that was just a whole reminder that unexpected things could happen and yeah. so that was a stark snap back to reality um Mm. I'll never forget the kind of vibe with you know that was the empty incubator and then when it got replaced with another baby and it kind of just felt so wrong yeah so he reached a kilo when he was four weeks old um and we got to move into nursery c which um was an open cot nursery and get him dressed for the first time which is so exciting um, and my partner, of course, had to return to work. So I, by that point in time, I was able to do daily cuddles and he would do his after work cuddles. So how we managed it was that I would do his cares, which was six hourly in the morning. So change his nappy, do whatever he needed to do. I would put him on me for kangaroo cuddles for six hours straight. I taught myself how to pump like reclining. Yeah. Um, then I would do his cares again six hours later which would be the moment that Mike would turn up at the hospital 
um, after finishing work and hand him over to him to do cuddles for the rest of the day. So we manage like a strict schedule of like 11 to 12 hours of kangaroo keep every single That's day. That's amazing. Which someone was five weeks old. Um, he just randomly needed to be resuscitated for no known reason. So that was my second call from an unknown number. And that was yeah. horrendous. Um, he was still just having regular apneas and Brady's and desaturations. And when he was eight weeks old, I got sick with the flu and I couldn't see him for three days. And it was utter torture, torture utter, utter, utter torture. Although it was the first time in so long that I'd actually just been able to rest. It was just, yeah. it was just torture. And then not only was it torture not seeing him, it was so scary, like returning to the unit, knowing you had been sick, questioning whether you were really well enough to be there and if you were yeah. going to be passing on to your baby. And so I literally like, so I kissed my son on the day he was born and then I did not kiss him again until I couldn't even tell you. He would have been. He would have probably been nearly three months old by the time wow. I the second time. I held him, but I never yeah. ever kissed him. Um. So, uh, at nine weeks, he was put onto OptiFlow, which is so cool. So he was a couple of weeks before his due date at that point in time. Um, and we yeah. were told to expect to take home an oxygen baby. Um, and it was the first time I noticed he had hair. Like you know, my. <laughs> son was nine weeks old I didn't even know he had hair in his head because he'd always been wearing this um on the CPAP yeah Yeah. um then at 10 weeks old we try we had our first breastfeeding attempt which was honestly like such a rigmarole we had he had to have his uh his uh respiratory levels temporarily lowered so the amount of um uh pressure that was being put through high flow was lowered uh, through optic flow was like lowered and um and it all had to be like monitored and scheduled and everything and it was just so it was such a rigmarole like it just it just didn't happen it was so little and um and I was so adamant that I was going to breastfeed but it really felt like it was going to be like an impossible thing um that wasn't ever going to happen because he was also just being fed through a tube and he was on such a schedule I felt like he never even really had the chance to kind of get hungry hungry yeah breastfeeding didn't really work for us like at that point and when we hit his due date he was two and a half kilos and we still had a bunch of things that had to happen before he was discharged so we had to have uh inguinal hernia surgery he had to take oral feeds and he developed an issue with his blood sugars so he had to have stable blood sugars which was something that just reared its head out of nowhere towards the end which was um also torturous yeah uh one week after his due date he got off um OptiFlow and had no oxygen so he was breathing by himself which was so exciting we never thought in the unit Um, of course he had hernia surgery and he did not cope well with general anesthetic and he had to go back to being ventilated and then we had to walk through the CPAP OptiFlow stages over a following week which was mentally really hard he had the surgery and the surgeon came to me and he said the surgery was great and then he left and then I walked to see him ventilated in the unit and they were trying to extubate him and they couldn't Mm. and I was like what's going on the 
surgeon told me that the surgery went fine. And they said, oh, yeah, the surgery went fine, but we're just having some trouble getting him out of um, – uh, getting out of his, his like sedation through the anesthesia, yeah. and it was just so. What a that was the that was really really that was probably like the second like worst day of the whole thing. Yeah. Think that okay, we're literally back to square one now. He's back yeah. to being we're going to have to spend another hundred days. Anyway, it took about a week, and he got he he went through the stages back to no oxygen which was really great and we transitioned into nursery a which is like the nursery that you go to before you get discharged and it meant yeah. the end was so exciting um but it wasn't we stayed there for weeks whilst what felt like all the other babies came and went home around us um his blood sugar issues meant that he required continuous feeding through a pump yeah um and they invited us to so we felt so when you're in room a or when you're in a skaboo kind of unit you get uh you are expected to take care of much as much of their like needs as you possibly can and so yeah we were completely and utterly like taking care of our son's needs during the day but we weren't able to stay there overnight and so the unit wanted to see how we would cope with having a baby that was like continuously fed um, at nighttime. So they gave us the chance to stay to room in. So stay in the hospital in a private room with our son for two nights to see how we cope with it. And it was like a dream come true, like an absolute dream come true. But then he had to go back to the nursery and go back to the normal day to day, like yeah. day night. Um, the normal kind of regime. So we got a taste of what it was like to be at home with our son. And then we had to hand him back to the nurses to go back. And what I realized was that I would leave the unit when he was asleep so that I could tell myself that he would sleep <laughs> from the moment I left until the moment I arrived. And that was the only way I could like leave him and, yeah. you know, deal with things. And then I realized, I mean, I knew, but then you got to see it. That wasn't the case at all. Like he woke up and he, he had needs and he was, you know, past his due date by then. Like he was a baby. He yeah. had he had things to say about what was going on. And it just yeah. was so sad that I couldn't then be there for him 24-7. So mm. um, so I hit a complete wall probably like two days after we had to go back to the normal, um, the normal regime of things. And I decided that I was going to camp in the corridor until he could come home. And I literally like packed my bags. I didn't even know what I was going to do, but I was imagining like getting one of a little like pop-up tent or something. I don't know. And I sent an SOS text message to his home care nurse. And I just said, I cannot do this anymore. Like he, I either need to be rooming in with him all the time now or he needs yeah. to come home. Yeah. And she was such an angel. She arranged the very next morning for his whole medical team to meet with us to discuss a plan. And they agreed that they would discharge us um, and have us return for weekly overnight stays, which is why yeah. that happened, to wean him from his pump and NG tube. Um, and we got to go home the very next day, which That's was day saying. 100 so yeah so we returned once a week and they slowly increased the the gaps in between his feeds um yeah. whilst monitoring his blood sugar levels to make sure that it was done all safely um and it was so weird because you know we just I had a foot in the unit and a foot out and like going back to the unit kind of felt like home but like home yeah. was home and it was really hard 
you know, operating on our own schedule and then going back to being like fully like monitored and um, with rules and things to follow. That was tricky. Um, and so it lasted for a month. So we returned for overnight stays for about three to four weeks. Um, and in order to be fully discharged, you had to learn how to feed orally. And we hadn't even been trying with breastfeeding or anything. It was just like NG tube. That was just what needed to be done. Um, so in order to uh, transition him from the tube, we bottle fed him for like 48 hours straight, um, which was the first time I'd ever fed from a bottle, but we managed to do it. It, it was and we probably did a little bit of like skewing the numbers but anyway <laughs> um we got him discharged from being bottle fed and we came home and it was the first time we'd ever had like a baby that wasn't connected to anything and yeah we, I'm sure it was that night maybe it was the next night we took him out for dinner to a restaurant for wellington burger on a plate and we were like well we have a baby that's next us that we can just feed with a bottle like how simple yeah. is this life <laughs> Um, and we thrived at home. Like I found the transition to home so easy. I didn't, I wasn't too sure whether I would be, you know, having been so caught up in all the numbers and everything, whether I would find that I would be the same at home and letting go of the kind of reins and control of that I would struggle with, but I didn't. I just found the transition really easily. I was happy to just like throw all the monitoring equipment in a cupboard and never forget it, never <laughs> think about it again. And, um, and we thrived and I persevered with breastfeeding and one day it just clicked and we managed yeah. to transition to exclusive breastfeeding, which was so amazing. That's so cool. Yeah, because I had... I didn't, I was persevering with pumping to my own kind of detriment, yeah. um, but I didn't realize that we would actually end up breastfeeding and it was just, yeah, it was the, it was the best thing ever. Yeah. Best thing ever. Um, because the demand of, of pumping is so extreme. Like I didn't have and a great. It really supply. is. Yeah. I didn't have a good supply. And so my pumping sessions were long and I have elastic nipples. Here's some more to hear my so if anybody who's listening to this and you're on a your pumping journey and you feel like your nipples aren't fitting into any flange like it shows in the pictures check out elastic nipples <laughs> um, and it was so exciting for me I learned that babies are so much more efficient at extracting milk from your breast yeah. than a is and so I um I managed to, we managed to do that exclusively and I managed to kind of keep up enough of a supply to feed him for the first year of his life, wow. which I'm proud of. Um, but for me, it was just like the the best thing. I The last time I used a pump, I kind of unceremoniously like threw it in the bin and I thought, <laughs> I'm not even, you don't even deserve to be like sold and used by anybody else. You just suck. Um <laughs> And so I hate pumps and I just, I find it really hard to understand why people choose to pump <laughs> um, when they don't have the choice to. But anyway, there's a whole story for another day. So, um, so was, yeah, so it was really exciting. Um, I postpartum, I definitely cried a lot, but I'm a crier. So that's kind of new. <laughs> I cried at least three times a day, probably at least. Um I would write daily Facebook updates to kind of send messages out to friends and family so I didn't need to kind of keep in touch with people individually. And yeah. we were really well supported by friends and family. And um, the biggest thing was I set up an online meal train and our friends and family fed us lunch and dinner 
every single day. That's amazing. 100 days like how amazing is that so we would have so cool unit or we would have food um left on our doorstep when we got home at night every single day that's just that was just the most incredible thing it was the only thing people could do for us but honestly it was just the most incredible thing and it's just Um, one less thing you've got to worry about right like you're already stretched so thin to come home and decide what to make for dinner no yeah absolutely so we didn't have to think about that at all so um such a good thing again anybody listening and people are asking you how you can help set up an online meal train and it's really easy to help um coordinate people to kind of get get food to you such a such a good thing I'll put um, a link. I'll put a link for um. Yeah, do it. Should, like, I think it's just mealtrain.com. But yeah, so good. You just you can. It shows you a calendar, and you can decide. You mm. know, if you need lunch or dinner or breakfast and whatever your requirements are. And so 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 good. Um. So yeah, that was huge. And really, kind of um, a, a highlight of the time there was. I remember going to a parents' lunch and. Again, COVID people probably didn't really go through this, but every Thursday, I think it was in Wellington, they would have a lunch and um, this volunteer organization, I think, called Good Bitches Baking, I think. Mm. Um, They would like make um, baking and all the parents and Nicky would like get together and sometimes uh, an ex-graduate would come and like bring, they would have their baby with them and, um, and it was so cool. So you kind of got to see what preemies would grow up to be like and there was yeah. one that that came one day and he was the same had been the same size as my son and I would just never forget that it really kind of helped me have a little bit of hope for what our yeah. what our future um would look like so later down the track I kind of realized how much this whole experience has um affected me which is basically just in terms of I mentioned it before comparing other people's traumatic experiences to my own um it's it's prevented me from returning to work as a birth doula so I didn't mention this to at all but I worked um uh, sorry I've been interested in pregnancy and birth my whole life and as a hobby a number of years ago I started uh, my own business as a birth doula so what a birth doula is is somebody um who kind of companion provides emotional practical physical support throughout pregnancy labor and postpartum so I would get hired by pregnant families to support them in any which way that they kind of needed yeah. and I had spent my whole life consuming all of this information about pregnancy and being so interested and passionate about it and parenthood um I turned it into a profession which I loved so much and then I had my son and it turned my world and all this optimism that I had about birth and my ability to like support people really well on its head Mm. um and it has completely prevented me from being able to return to doing that work because what I do is when somebody has a bad experience and I, I I'm so aware of it now but even listening to previous episodes in your podcast I'm hearing people's story and logically I'm telling logically I know that's a horrible thing that happened to you that's really tough mm. but intuitively I say to myself oh yeah but I would have rather had what you had than what I had and yeah. so even though that's like an unkind way to be thinking, it's just what happens and it's human nature and I can't stop it. And so it has prevented me from being able to be a 
good support for anybody else going through um, labor and birth and like a traumatic experience. And so, um, so I had to figure out how to do something else, how to earn an income, how to um, get back into the workforce after having a baby. And so I um, started learning how to do baby hand and foot casting, which was inspired by the woman that came and did the little hand and foot of my um, of my boy. And so you hadn't done any of that prior to? No, I hadn't done any prior. No, no. So I um, wow. just. Uh, she did them and I thought those are so cool. I would love how to learn how to do that just as a kind of um, a hobby, a creative yeah. hobby. And I had friends who had babies and they were kind enough to let me practice on their babies. And then that became kind of friends of friends and friends of friends of friends. And yeah. I thought oh, I could probably turn this into a business. And so towards the end of my maternity leave, that is what I uh, that's what I did. So I started my own business. It's now my full-time gig. Um, I get to talk about pregnancy and birth, which is just such an interest of mine. I get to talk about parenthood. Um, I get to see the cutest little babies. Mm-hmm. Um, I am protected. I'm protected on, uh, you know, protecting myself from being too involved with anybody's kind of health outcomes. And so I found yeah. this really cool um, balance of working in a space that allows me to be creative and fulfills me in terms of, you know, the topics that I'm kind of interested in. And I get to make these pieces of art, which are just so meaningful to people. Um, And my dream was that I would always be able to go back into the neonatal unit and cast babies in there whilst they were alive. And I'm working on that at the moment, um, but it's been a little bit tricky to kind of get permissions to in there and and do that kind of thing um but you know this whole experience and how it's adversely affected me it set me up on this trajectory to doing this thing that I love and I'm in this place in life that I'm so happy with and if I uh, although I wouldn't wish it on my worst enemy I would do it 100 times all over again just to be sitting here and kind of telling you the story um so yes yeah, so, so so lucky that's kind of in, ended up for me because there's certainly it hasn't been all peachy you know I found it really hard to like let my son just be in the world and have him touched and around other people and you know we ended up in lockdown from when he was about nine months for the following year or years and that sort of suited me quite well because it protected him from people and sickness and things and I didn't have to be the bad big bad wolf making those rules and um and starting this business uh that means I get to work from home has meant I've been able to kind of remain a partially stay-at-home mum because the prospect Mm. of going back to work and leaving him in the care of other people was like a hideous prospect um and so I've slowly been able to like release the reins of letting him be away from me. And I, again, I don't know if I would have been any different. And this is the whole thing about having a preemie or having a baby who's had a neonatal stay for health issues that you don't know how it has really affected them. Yeah. And you don't know that if it didn't happen, would they be any other way? And so, yeah. um, I, uh, 
get you know over time you get better to kind of not worry so much about that but um I've just been really fortunate you know he didn't start kindy until he was two years old and even then it was only for two days a week and um now he's now he's four years old and he's just going there for three days a week plus he goes to his nana's and so I'm I'm still not brave enough to have him away from me at night but neither has he, has he so that kind of just suits <laughs> us fine um and it'll be really interesting to see how this whole experience kind of shapes my next pregnancy um which I don't think it'll be for the best but we'll just have to we'll just have to kind of roll with it yeah yeah it's just it's our it's our story and so I'm really grateful to you for just being interested enough and hearing other people's stories and sharing your own and um because I like to talk about this you know this is probably the biggest event that has happened in my entire life um and talking about it I I find it easy to talk about it and I have a lot to say yeah well Um, like I say like if when I was sitting in the unit being like oh my god I'm gonna freaking be here forever like I'm gonna die in this stupid warm room yeah yeah (laughs) I would have loved to have heard you know from people like you who are four years past it and knowing that it's not forever and you know your babies grow up and they thrive and they move on from the rough start they had you know so so yeah that was Rosie's story with um her boy Oakley um as I said in the beginning like it's so nice to hear that she's you know not having any kind of ongoing personal issues with not issues but you know she's not affected negatively by everything that her and her son went through which is so nice to hear um obviously as we talk about in the episode it's nice to feel like your feelings are validated no matter how you found your experience there's going to be someone else that feels the same as you and it's okay to feel however you feel um but yes, I will put in the description um, a link to Rosie's business, Rosie's Life Casting Studio, and also the Meal Train website that we spoke about um, if you're interested in either of those things. Otherwise, I hope you loved listening to this episode. It was a longer one, but amazing. Um, yeah, so I will chat to you soon. Bye.